Well, good morning again. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, where we will continue this morning our work through this important epistle. We have uh, been working through chapter 3 for a while here, trying to grasp the significance of what Paul is teaching, the the imperative, if you will, to the indicative, the, the action that follows, the understanding of the doctrine that is explained in chapters 1 and chapters 2 in particular. And so Paul here in chapter 3 is concerned, of course, with a life that reflects the reality of the truths that are communicated in the preceding chapters and even in portions of chapter 3 here. And so uh, this morning we're going to continue to work through this passage and to unpackage its meaning, looking in particular at verse 11, at verse 11. And before we get into that, particular text this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our blessed Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the opportunity to gather and worship and to sing and to fellowship and to use our spiritual gifts. We are so grateful for the unique opportunity that you present to us this way. And we're, we're joyful that we are known by you, that we have been redeemed by the finish and through the finished work of Jesus Christ, and what an amazing, transformative Uh, inexpressible event that has been for us, and we are so grateful, Lord, that you have seen fit to save us. Thank you, Lord, for the the word that you have given to us, and may we um, understand it today, open our hearts to comprehend the meaning of the words and to have it impact our hearts in a way that changes us, um, that causes us to grow through the work of the Holy Spirit, and we know that that is what you intend when we gather together, and so Continue to grow us, continue to sanctify us, continue to keep us and preserve us, help us help our focus to be upon Christ, even in the challenging days in which we live. Help us not to be too concerned about all the things that are happening around us, but to reflect on the fact that you are seated on your throne, that you are returning again, and that we will reign with you forever. And in the meantime, we pray that you would keep us, preserve us for your glory and for your honor. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, let's just go go back by way of reminder, refresh our recollection, um, uh, since we've uh, taken a little time out of the the chapter here last week. And so let's go back and pick up with Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true or full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. 
Well, we often hear in evangelical circles today about the idea of unity. It's the clarion call of many, and indeed we, we have people challenging us all the time to be more unified, to come together and to work cooperatively with whatever they're engaged in. The problem is, though, is that oftentimes these calls for unity require that those who are faithful to Scripture compromise on key and important issues. And we'll find today that Paul identifies the appropriate means by which we are to be unified and what ultimately binds us together and what should bind us together. We'll see that Paul points out to us, as we noted just now in verse 11, it's all about Christ. At the end of the day, that which brings us together, that which ought to unify us, is Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be looking today at the, the unity that we have in Christ and, and how Paul deals with this particular issue. Now, it's important to be reminded of why Paul is calling for this type of unity, why he's looking to break down these various types of barriers that are often put in place artificially by people around the world through various cultures, barriers that ultimately result in division and hurt feelings and turmoil and war and a lot of other things, um, to say the least. And so, uh, Paul is very concerned that within the, Colossi, the Colossian church in particular, that what binds them together is indeed unity in Christ, and not unity through some other means or method like the false teacher was advocating through the performance of certain rituals or the recognition of perhaps one dominant group within the uh, assembly there, most likely the Jewish uh, sect that was part of this Colossian church. And was connected in some way to the teaching of the false teacher. What we understand is that what Paul is saying to us in particular in verse 11 is that the consequences of verse 10 is borne out by a unity that is in Jesus Christ. It is the necessary consequence, if you will. It only stands to reason that those who have been renewed, those who have a true knowledge of him, those upon whom the image of Jesus Christ has been impressed, those whom Jesus Christ is sanctifying, are going to ultimately then bear out and demonstrate the reality of that conversion, that renewal, in the way they interact with other people, in the way that they engage the culture, in the way that they communicate about certain topics and certain issues. Indeed, this passage is incredibly relevant for the church today because we find in the church division being created by people who are bringing in a message that is ultimately creating division rather than unifying people in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so what we find from Paul in the passage in verse 10 is that we have an identity that harkens back to the creative mandate in the book of Genesis as, as Adam was new creation, so too are we, that we have been fitted for service by God to perform that which he has called us, and that is to be fruitful and multiply by the propagation and proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we also find is that the spiritual man in each believer's heart, like Adam in the beginning of the world, was created after God's image. We are indeed image bearers, the imago dei, if you will. 
And as a consequence of that, we have a profound impact on all that is around us. Paul here sees the transformative work of Jesus Christ being borne out in the way that we engage with other people, which is quite profound. And when we begin to break down the various barriers that he references here, they are significant. They are very significant, yet it is Jesus Christ and our union with him that ultimately overcomes all of these things. It's really quite remarkable and very beautiful. And so we see in verse 10 that the new birth was a recreation in God's image and that the subsequent life that we live must be a deepening of that image that is stamped upon us. And so this this transformation took place the moment God saved us, the moment that we were regenerated by the Holy Spirit, This transformation was complete, and it continues in its development and growth through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so as we look at this passage, let's consider what Paul is saying here as it relates to the language that he's using. It's really quite remarkable, and I think you're going to be um, really impacted by what Paul has to say. So, verse 11 notes that we have a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And so Paul here begins to tie together the consequence of the corporate renewal. Paul had been talking about the individual in verse 9 and in verse 10, But now he brings the idea of the renewal into the corporate arena, the family of God, into the church. And so this renewal, he tells us, a renewal in which there is no distinction. So there's the idea of this corporate nature of the new self in view more than the individual in the preceding two verses. And what's significant about the language here is this. The actual passage reads this way. A renewal where there cannot be any distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Note the significance of the language where there cannot be. This renewal indicates that that which is typical of the world cannot and does not exist amongst the redeemed. The renewal has a consequence. The renewal changes us. It changes the way we think. Indeed, does not Paul say in verse 2, set your mind on the things above. The consequence of that is a change in the way we think about other people and the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Indeed, this way, the way that we think ultimately impacts and breaks down all national, ritual, intellectual, and societal barriers. That's amazing when you consider what Paul is doing here. Now, keep in mind, there is a false teacher in the church in Colossae, and that false teacher is creating new barriers or bringing old barriers back in. They have freedom in Jesus Christ. They've been taught the gospel by their faithful pastor. They have been grounded in the word that Paul commends them for their faith and their hope and their love. He prays that their knowledge will increase, that their love for Christ will increase, that their love for each other will increase. 
This is a knowledgeable congregation, yet someone has come in and has begun to recreate and impose those barriers which in Christ do not exist. Indeed, the gospel does not produce, it cannot, that's the point that Paul is making here, the gospel will not and cannot produce the barriers that are recognized here in this particular verse. That is the context in which we continue to enforce them or to engage them as a meaningful way of engaging with each other. Paul is emphasizing the fact that it doesn't make any sense. It's contrary to reason. It's contrary to the logic of Scripture. It's contrary to the very purposes of the gospel. You mean to tell me that you're in Jesus Christ, yet you're continuing to treat each other in the context of these secular boundaries and barriers? That you're carrying and harboring hate and resentment and disdain for other people based upon categories created by the world. This is repulsive to Paul. And indeed, what happens is this. We'll see next time, when that will be, I'm not certain, but next time in verse 12, he, he drives home the distinction so much so that he, he takes it back into the doctrine of election indicating that you've been saved for a purpose, a purpose which encompasses a renewal that does not fall within the normal worldly context or divisions. That is very significant. That is very, very significant. And so, the language here is such as this. There is a renewal where there cannot be any distinction. So, you're saved, God saves you, that renewal, that stamping of the image of God upon you changes the way that you think, the way that you act, and the way that you assert yourself within the world and amongst each other in the church. What's interesting to me is that the language is structured in such a way in the Greek that it emphasizes that this is a statement of fact rather than a possibility. It is a statement of fact. And so when we read the language in verse 11, when we understand that this is a renewal where there cannot be any distinction, that is a statement of fact for every person that God saves. And it doesn't change. The statement of fact does not change based upon your socioeconomic or political positions. That's so important. If the church could see this, we are being torn apart at the seams by people who are ignoring the clear word of God with respect to divisions and all these types of categories. It's tearing the church apart. It's taking our focus off of Jesus Christ, and rather it is placing it upon ourselves. I am now more concerned about microaggressions against myself than I am for my brother and sister in Jesus Christ. I am going to assert my categories, my identification within those categories, and claim them to be more important than who I am in Jesus Christ. That is absolutely wrong, and it is not what the gospel produces. Now, hear me when I say that. That is not what the gospel produces. 
It is antithetical to what the gospel produces. Those who have been renewed in a true knowledge, go back to verse 10, there is a consequence to the true knowledge that is attendant with our regeneration. We are growing in an understanding of who Jesus Christ is. As a consequence of that, I am beginning to set aside. I am moving away from the worldly structures that have confined me and belittled me and made me do things that I ought not to do. That is a huge issue. And so for Paul, he's saying to them in a very clear way, stop it. Stop it right now. Nip it, nip it in the bud. I, I don't, this, this cannot be any clearer. How this is getting ignored by so many people today is absolutely mind-boggling. People who profess to be incredibly wise, leaders of massively huge denominations, people who have written books, people who have big conferences, people who do all sorts of things under the name of Christ, embracing the very ideology that Paul is rebuking the Colossians for embracing. He's challenging them in the context of the reality of the transformation that is part and parcel of God saving somebody. And he says it ought not to be. There is no, it cannot be there. There can never be. There cannot be any distinction. That's a statement of fact, not a mere possibility. And we find that Paul uses language like this in other passages of Scripture. Let's go to the other portions of Scripture and help us to understand this. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, perhaps a passage that's familiar to us. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Look at the language. Look at the similarity. Do you think the Lord wants us to understand something? Okay, here it is again in Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, seed, Heirs according to promise. There's a big eschatological statement if there ever was one. That has massive implications as it relates to who we are and what God's purpose is for us, which ties into the fact that verse 28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. These categories do not become the means by which we divide the body of Christ nor do they become the categories by which we then assert ourselves with each other or in the world. If you're a Christian and your main complaint and your primary argument is to always be asserting your microaggression, your category, then you are well outside the will of God. You are acting contrary to Scripture. You are doing something that Paul says you've been actually redeemed to stop doing. Remember, this is a renewal. This is a transformation. This is a change. 
your new creation in Christ Jesus, the consequences of which is that you change the way you think. You change the way you act. You change the way you interact with other people and what you assert in the context of your own personal rights and privileges. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 4. Look what Paul says here. The sister church of Colossae. It's believed by most biblical historians and theologians that the letters to to the church in Ephesus and to the church of Colossae were circulated amongst a number of churches in the Lycra Valley. And so it's likely that the Colossians read this letter as well. And they would have been reminded again of this very important point. Verse 4 of chapter 4 of Ephesians, there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There you have it again. You can't say it any more plainer. So ultimately, at the end of the day, what is important to you is not your ethnic identity, not your felt microaggression, not your perceived harm or hurt. It is your identity in Jesus Christ. You are called to constantly identify yourself in that way all the time. All the time. That's the consequences of being born again for Pete's sake. Why else did God save you? So you, can, so you can just do what you want in the context of however you might be feeling at any given moment? No, of course not. You have been redeemed for a purpose. Look what happens. The purpose is so amazing that it was secured before the very foundation of the world because as I move out of these distinctions, as I let go of these identities and barriers that have created all sorts of problems, I then do something very different. I do it in verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, do what? Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Anybody know where that list comes from? That's called what? The fruit of the who? The spirit. It's not the fruit of my microaggression. It's not a fruit of my ethnicity. Honestly, how how do people read this and not see it? Well, their minds are darkened. They're not believers. I'm going to just say it plain and simple. You cannot hold to a position that is antithetical to this and name the name of Jesus Christ. You can't. Paul is saying to me that the context of my salvation harkens back to the very garden, the creative act of God with Adam. He created Adam for a purpose. He has now created me new in Jesus Christ for the purpose that he created Adam, and that is to be fruitful and multiply and extol his glory around the world, not assert my own rights. This is exactly what Paul's driving home, and he knows that if, our, if, if we are together in that context, if we come together in the unity that is in Jesus Christ, that the Lord will be glorified and that his kingdom will be growing and established and, and all that he intended will be seen as we work towards our ultimate glorification at his return. There may be suffering in this context. 
the world is going to hate us because of these things, because we're so much different. But the church is so much like the world today, you can't tell one from the other. We talk the way they talk. We use words like critical race theory. We talk about microaggressions. We talk about racism. We talk about how I feel and how I'm hurt and how I want reparations and how everything is a problem because you're white. Are you serious? I'll get that. But Paul here in both Colossians, Galatians, and Ephesians tells us that these indications are no longer valid. These these distinctions are no longer valid within the circle of the gospel. It's amazing to me that we get together for the gospel, but when we get together for the gospel, all we talk is about the things that Paul says we shouldn't be talking about. How does that work? I've been watching some of the things that are going on with the conferences that are out there together for the gospel and this thing and that thing. It's so antithetical because all we're hearing about is all the harms and hurts and how it's our fault and what we did was wrong and it's because of who we are and our white privilege and all these other things and we can't even have a conversation that's meaningful anymore because you're just speaking out of your whiteness. God made me this way. I am white by his design. You are what you are by his design. Whether it's of some other ethnic group, some other category, yes, even a slave. You know what Paul does with slaves in Colossians? Well, first of all, he tells Philemon to go back, or Onesimus to go back to Philemon, who was, a, who, who was his owner. But look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Oh, what? But my microaggression... My, my, my category, my, my claim to myself, I, I, gotta, I have to assert my rights. So, Paul says that in the gospel there are no distinctions. That these barriers that have been imposed by the world have been negated. The word no is a negation It is a complete negation. It denies the thing itself. It's an absolute negation. It is a categorical negation. It is a direct negation. It is an objective negation. Paul is using very precise language here as it relates to the fact that these categories are absolutely obliterated in the context of our position in Jesus Christ. They no longer matter or have any meaning. And so what Paul does is that he goes ahead and he just kind of blows the whole thing up. He designates different racial, religious, cultural, and social distinctions that, while found on earth among the unredeemed, are obliterated and ceased to exist in the new self that is recreated by Christ. And so what he does is he first gives two pairs that contrast ethnicities, then names two groups individually, and then closes with another contrasting pair. First is the pair of Greek and Jew. This is significant. The Jews were all about being Jews. If anybody had a right title or claim to anything, it was the Jews. And they asserted it all the time. They're apparently doing it in this church. 
This is why Paul is making reference to it. It's a problem in the New Testament church because we see repeated references to it. We saw it in Galatians chapter 3, don't we not? We see it here, and there's an emphasis on the unity that is in the spirit, not based upon your ethnic group or your, your, your cultural identification. And so Paul here uses it to tease out the fact that those who are in the congregation need to understand that your national identity is of no significance anymore. You are a Christ one. You are a Christian. And so you let go of all of the things that are attached to your identity and that nationality in terms of claiming your rights, your privileges, or your position. And indeed, he does the very same things with the Greeks who were quick to claim their cultural superiority to other people and their, their better language and, and all of those things. And so he deals with the two classes of people on the, on the face of the planet, basically, Jews and Gentiles. The word Greek can sometimes encompass the idea of other people besides Jews. And says that whatever you claim, that's part and parcel of whoever you are nationally, forget about it. It doesn't matter. Set it aside. That distinction is of no import. Now, it doesn't mean that you lose your identity as the person that you are in terms of the country that you were born in. I'm an American. I was born in the United States, and that's that. But that does not become the means by which I then ultimately always identify myself. My first identity now is in Christ. Because why? I'm a new creation. That does not change a lot. Boy, does that change the game. So, Paul here is saying is that there is no longer this Greek-Jew distinction. The Jews don't get to claim their exclusive rights to the things of God, perhaps, or their superiority in some context, and the Greeks don't get to claim their cultural significance and assert that against people. Paul continues, of course, that distinction, as we note in the Jew and the Greek, has something to do with what? Your birth and your race or your religion. So three categories are dealt with right out of the gate by Paul. Birth, your ethnic group, or religion. So the next pair that we look at is then the circumcised and uncircumcised. We see that in verse 11, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. Why on earth deal with that? Why, why talk about that category? Well, it is similar to the distinction that he has just noted regarding Greeks and Jews, but he's doing this perhaps because with the Jews coming into the church, they were emphasizing the importance of circumcision and trying to make others become circumcised, and that was creating problems within the church, massive problems within the church. We see that in the book of Galatians. We see it elsewhere. They were imposing a legalistic requirement upon non-Jewish converts claiming that you couldn't be genuinely born again unless you engaged in this ritual that we engaged in. And so, Paul wants to make it very clear, as he does in the book of Galatians, that the issue of your circumcision, your state of circumcision, has nothing to do with you any longer. 
It's no longer a means by which you're identified or categorized in the context of the kingdom of Christ. That's huge. Why is that? Well, Paul kind of explained it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. I'm now the seed of Abraham. Christ is the seed of Abraham. I'm in Christ. And so I've been incorporated into all of that in the context of the new Israel, if you will, spiritual Israel. The implications, of course, are significant for this particular group of believers because there are both Jews and non-Jews within the congregation. And it appears that the false teacher was reaching into this conflict in order to push his agenda, to continue to push his pagan, mystic legalism onto other aspects or groups within the church in Colossae. It's likely that he was championing physical circumcision as necessary for saving faith. And so Paul makes reference to it here, making certain that the distinction that would have existed between Jew and Greek reaches further into the more, more immediate and uh, 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 personal implications of the distinction. That's significant because it speaks to the idea of how complete and thorough our transformation in Christ is and how much is done away with going back and hearkening back to the idea that Christ is all and in all. I don't need to be circumcised any longer to be brought in within the covenant, so to speak. I am in Christ who has perfectly completed everything and in chapter 2, verse 11, Christ cut away the old man. So, Paul continues then with the idea of of there being concerns about intellectual distinctions. Well, you know, there are people within the church or others that I'm smarter than they are. Um, And this is why Paul uses this barbarian, which is quite unique. I mean, that's something that you and I aren't perhaps very familiar with. So, he, he uses the idea in verse 11, he says... Um, there's a n- no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. We understand those two categories now. They've been obliterated. Remember, we're obliterating categories. We're not keeping categories or modifying categories. We're obliterating them. They're gone. He now deals with this idea of barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man in the, in the context of these two categories. And so this, this barbarian Scythian thing kind of reaches into this, this idea of the intellectual. Um, this word barbarian is unique. It refers to those who spoke in stammering, stuttering expressions, uttering unintelligible sounds, and who were thus considered of strange speech or foreign origin or foreign language. Um, it's hard for us to perhaps categorize that because we don't have that type of interaction. Oh, maybe if you go to Pittsburgh, it might happen. I don't know, but <laughs> but nonetheless, these were people that that were difficult to understand. And then come Scythians. Well, what on earth is a Scythian? Uh, have you ever met a Scythian? Uh, you might think you have raised one. I don't know. 
My dad used to say to me, are you a Scythian? <laughs> What's a Scythian, dad? Then he would call me Gordhead, and I finally figured that out. But uh, Gourds are hollow, of course, right? This idea of Scythians. Scythians were inhabitants of what is today known as southern Russia. Um, by the more civilized nations of antiquity, the Scythians were regarded as the wildest of all barbarians. They were the barbarians or savage barbarians par excellence. They were more, more barbarous than barbarians. <laughs> Say that four times real fast. And so Paul breaks down the intellectual. You, you've got people who, are, who, are, who, who, who have no cultural, uh, cultural significance to claim. They have no morals that, that guides their behavior. Their language is un, un, not, not recognizable or understandable. They're, they're, in minds of many people, just kind of worthless. They're, they're of no real good to anything. And so Paul breaks down that whole intellectual idea of the barriers that are created by men. And finally, we see the societal barriers being destroyed by Paul, obliterated again. That's the word you need to have in your margins of your Bible. Paul obliterates all categories. So the next time you get into an argument with somebody about critical race theory and reparations and racism and social justice, you just take them to Colossians 3.11 and say, Paul has obliterated all those categories. We are in Christ Jesus. Let them, argue their, let them argue their way out of that one. And so he talks about slaves and free men, which mark out both sides of the social scale of bondage to servitude on the one hand and self-directed autonomy on the other. You've got people in this congregation, it's obvious, you've got slave owners and slaves in the same congregation. You've got Philemon and Onesimus. Onesimus, the slave, takes the letter back to the church. And then Paul writes a letter to Philemon instructing him on how to interact with Onesimus. Mind-blowing. This is because Paul understands the implications of the gospel. And so, what's significant is that the false teacher was preaching a gospel. Think about this, friends. The false teacher, the reason that Paul's going through these categories, the false teacher was preaching a gospel that divides. That's exactly what's going on in the church today. Some are in and others are out. Boy, you, if you're not woke, you're gone. And you see all these pastors around the country capitulating to all the nonsense that's going on out there. We see absurd books being written by false teachers like Lisa Sharon Harper and her book, The Very Good Gospel, which is neither very good nor the gospel. It's a joke. She has these categories of thin gospel and thick gospel. Well, the thick gospel, the real gospel, is the gospel that takes into consideration all of your microaggressions, how you feel in the category that you exist in, and how we need to have the gospel used in a manner that allows that person's microaggression to be recognized and facilitated within the church. That's absolutely false. That is another gospel. That's nonsense. Yet the church is buying it hook, line, and sinker. It's everywhere. It's permeating the Southern Baptist denomination. It's ripping colleges apart. It's destroying seminaries. 
It's destroying churches. It's tearing our culture apart. And so Paul is saying, stop this. This false teacher is preaching a gospel that divides. Stop with the categories that bring some in and put others out. Some are in the know and others are not. The gospel of Jesus Christ unites. It overcomes social, racial, religious, and cultural distinctions to make all believers stand on the level ground of grace before God in Christ. The grace of God coming down to man is given without regard to such distinctions. That grace which operates on a vertical axis from God to man then goes horizontal between the recipients of such grace and those same distinctions fade away in the fellowship of those who make up the new self corporately. Individually you're new, corporately you're new. Stop acting like the world. Stop thinking like the world. Stop categorizing yourself as the world does. This is the answer to what's going on today. So if someone comes to you and they want to talk to you about your white privilege and they want to talk to you about critical race theory in the church, if they want to assert social justice in the church, you take them right back to Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, and you make them explain their position in light of the God's word, not how they feel. God's word is the final authority for faith and practice. This is all that matters. This is all that matters. And we need to get back to this because the benefits of it are significant. Paul then plays out in the balance of this chapter how this then looks, the reality of it, the forgiveness that's attendant with it, the unity, the love, the kindness, the gentleness, all these things that flow out of unity in Christ which are not part of those divisions which the world has created and recognizes. Well, next week, we'll reach into this phrase about Christ being all in all and look at verse 12, Lord willing, as we understand how then Paul brings all this together in Jesus Christ, how he connects all of the dots back in Jesus Christ, reminding us that we are in Christ and because we are in Christ, we are complete because he is complete. And that is what we should claim. And that is what we should rest in. And that is what we should glory in rather than in what we think may have been done to us in one way or the other. Well, the issue really is about knowing Jesus Christ. The issue really is about being new creation in Jesus Christ. And I trust that you know him today, that you have turned to Christ in faith, that you look to Jesus Christ alone and that you don't take solace or comfort in some category or division. And whether it be socioeconomic, cultural, political, religious, ethnic, whatever it is, those things don't matter. We are renewed in Jesus Christ. And in that context, we can live for Him in a way that is different than the world expects or wants. That's what we're called to be. We're Christians, and let's live like Christians and rejoice that God has saved us and changed us and made us new creation in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this exhortation, this very clear and very firm 
um, uh, word uh, here in the book of Colossians, the idea that, that we are no longer divided, that we are no longer recognized in the context of these categories, be they national or social or intellectual, whatever they are, that they are gone, they have been obliterated because we are in Jesus Christ. And may we now live out the reality of that amongst and with each other and rejoicing that we are known by you and kept by you for a particular purpose. And we look forward to that day when we are reunited with you, Lord, and, and we are, are brought together in the, in the wonderful and fully recognized and revealed kingdom of Christ. We rejoice that we are able to be here today. Thank you for making this great day for us and providing us with this time to be together. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you.